Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. For the past three weeks, we've considered how Jesus dealt with a group of Pharisees and scribes who came down from Jerusalem to address some concerns that they had with Jesus. Isn't that rich? Some non-miracle working Jewish officials who fancied themselves to be great teachers of the law are going to correct a man who is teaching with a wisdom and authority that they've never seen. They can't fathom. Even though that man is authenticating his teachings by performing miraculous healings everywhere he goes as he announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. Yep, that's right. They're going to come and they're going to set him straight. But it didn't exactly turn out the way that they planned, did it? Jesus absolutely crushed them. Uh, We've learned that sometimes there's a place for a harsh word. And sometimes there's a place for a stern rebuke. And there's even a a time when it's appropriate to publicly humiliate and even intentionally offend a person or a group of people. If you were here for the past few weeks, you've heard in great detail about the uncompromising, fearless, offensive severity with which Jesus dealt with this Jerusalem Inquisition. Now, if you've not been here and you're interested in, in hearing about how such offensive speech can be biblically defended, then you're going to have to go back and listen online. Because there's a dramatic shift in Jesus' tone, his tenor, and his teaching this week. And why is that? Because Jesus deals with his disciples in a vastly different way than he deals with his unteachable opponents. And we're going to see that today in Matthew 15, 15 through 20. It says that Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. We're going to look this morning at an explanation requested, some exasperation expressed, an explanation given, and then an explanation restated. As we consider the necessity of patient, repetitious instruction in discipleship. Let's begin with this request, this explanation requested in verse 15. It says that Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Let's consider first who, is, who it is that's asking. Verse 15, Peter. Jesus interacted with different people in different ways. The text only mentions Peter, but Peter is asking as a representative for all the disciples. We know that because when Jesus answers, he says, Are you still lacking understanding also? And that you is plural. It's are y'all, to use the southern, uh, the southern uh, interpretation. right? So are y'all, all you disciples, they're all there together. Peter speaks for them. And are y'all still lacking understanding also? There's an enormous difference between the response of disciples to Jesus and that of scribes and Pharisees and opponents. So there's an enormous difference in how Jesus relates to them. Disciples, you know what that means? It means a pupil. It means a learner. A Pharisee and scribes, they are the opposite of that. They are teachers. Jesus dealt with teachable persons far differently than he dealt with the man who fancied himself to be an expert or a rabbi. That harsh, critical, sarcastic, shaming tone that Jesus used on the Pharisees was appropriate for them. He used those tools to humble the proud heart, to bring men low who had exalted themselves. But Jesus dealt with disciples differently, and so should we. How, should we, how can we recognize a disciple? Well, turn, turn back to uh, Matthew 4, and let's, let's consider even the calling of Peter I'm going to draw two points from that and then one more. 
to think when we're looking for a disciple, we're looking for someone, okay, we, we've got to be, we've got to treat these people differently. This is what we're looking for. Matthew 4, 18 through 20. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. One thing you're going to see in a disciple is an eagerness to obey. The Jerusalem Pharisees and scribes had undoubtedly heard about Jesus for a while before they came down for this encounter. Remember, you're in chapter 4. Look forward a few verses in 24 and 25. The news about him, about Jesus, spread through all of Syria. And verse 25, large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis. And from where? From Jerusalem. These are Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees. These news is spread everywhere. Everybody's heard about this miracle-working rabbi, Jesus, who is teaching in all of these synagogues and doing miraculous works. They would have heard. When you read through Matthew, you see many or large crowds followed or news spread over and over again. But did these Pharisees and scribes come in order to see if maybe this guy might be the Messiah? They didn't come for that reason. By this time, Jesus has been teaching for two full years. There was no immediately to them. They hear about it, and they stay in their synagogues and their seats of honor. They stay away. They don't care about the Messiah. They weren't eager to see what was going on with this miracle-working messianic figure. They didn't come until apparently they received a report that Jesus was disregarding the tradition of the elders. Remember in chapter 12 where it said that some of those scribes and Pharisees wanted to figure out how they might destroy him. And it seems that they've gone to Jerusalem to get some high-ranking Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees to come and check things out. And then they came. Are they coming as disciples or are they coming as judges and juries? They weren't eager to obey. But Peter recognized the authority of Jesus from the beginning. And he did what Jesus told him to do with no excuses. He, he, did, he didn't give a, let me go make sure my wife can manage for a few days. Or a few months. Or three years without me. No, Jesus, Peter is called by Christ and he immediately left. Since that was the Messiah, the disciples' reasons, we would be fools not to follow. Sure, there's things we've got to figure out. Sure, there's going to be difficulties. But this is the Messiah, and I've got to follow him regardless of what he requires. Disciples are eager to obey Jesus. But next, notice what Andrew and Peter left. They left their nets. Also in chapter 4, verse 20. Fishing was all that Peter and Andrew knew. It was their family business. It was how that they had provided for themselves and their families. But if following Jesus meant everything had, that they had ever done, ever known, or ever trusted in had to be tossed to the side and they had to chart a new course, of course the arrival of the Messiah would change everything and they would leave everything. They would obey even when it cost them. Disciples would do that. Jesus' call to discipleship is if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A disciple knows that he needs to be transformed and he's willing to go through some growing pains and through uncertain times to get to something better. He doesn't stick, this is what has always worked, but God's calling me to something different, then I'll leave what has always worked and I'll go to something different. Disciples will do that. That's who he's dealing with, with Peter. The Pharisees and scribes were just the opposite. All they knew was the synagogue life. And they loved the synagogue life. Just like the disciples, many of the rulers believed in Jesus. But unlike the disciples, they were unwilling to change everything that they had ever done, ever known or trusted in. Remember in John 12, 42, that many of the rulers believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Peter would leave his fishing. Scribes and Pharisees, they wouldn't leave anything that they were new or that they were comfortable with. Lastly, let's consider how unlike the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples, they start from a place of faith. One of my favorite old quotes from the old dead guys is from Anselm. He says, For I do not seek to understand in order that I might believe, but I believe in order that I might understand. For this I also believe, that unless I believe, I will never understand. You start from I believe. I don't, I don't have it all figured out. 
But I believe and I'll go from that faith and I will fit what I see into that faith and it will build it when you come from a posture of belief. A disciple is not the person who has everything figured out. But a disciple believes and he desires to continue learning. The, disciple, the disciples believed and the more that Jesus taught, the more the disciples understood. And the more miracles he performed, the more their faith grew. The Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would show up doing unprecedented miracles and the disciples saw the miracles for what they were, authenticating evidence that this is the Messiah. Therefore, they followed Jesus regardless of his demands or his costs. Even the crowds were teachable in comparison to these Pharisees, though. They had already determined that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They'd done made their mind up. They started from, we don't believe this, and then whatever they experienced, nothing would change their mind. It didn't matter. So it, you couldn't change their mind when they've already determined, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. Consider the contrast between even the crowds and the Pharisees. In chapter 9, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And they're thinking, this must be the Messiah. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. They've, the proof, look, a miracle. Don't care about the miracle. He's not the Messiah. So if he did a miracle, he did it by wicked powers. Why did they know that? They just decided because they weren't going to believe. The demon-possessed blind mute was healed just three chapters later in 12, 23, and 24. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons by Beelzebul, prince of the demons. One of the most telling examples is in uh, John 7:23. Many of the crowds believed in him and were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man has, will he? But then in verse 41, still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. So, okay, he's doing miracles. Maybe he's the Messiah. I mean, he's healing people. He's healing blind people and deaf people and lame people. He's raising the dead. Maybe he's the Messiah. But wait, we've got a bigger piece of information here. He's from Galilee. So who cares if he's raising people from the dead? He's from Galilee. He can't be the Messiah. That's how they reason. Because they're starting from we don't believe. They do rightly say, well, the Scriptures say he'll be from Bethlehem. Do you think maybe the guy that's from Galilee might have been born in Bethlehem? He just don't live there no more? They could have done a little investigating. But they didn't do any investigating. Why? Because they didn't start from a place of faith. They started from a place of doubt. And when a person starts from a place of doubt, you bring up new information, it doesn't matter what you bring up, they're going to argue with you and you're not going to get anywhere. So he deals with the Pharisees who start from a place of doubt harshly because he's not going to get anywhere. But he deals with the disciples differently. The skeptic looks for reasons not to believe. The disciple looks to better understand what he believes. The disciples didn't know the answer to every question that they had. They didn't understand how everything fit together, but they believed. And everything they saw caused them to believe more. Remember when the men were on the boat, the disciples were on the boat in 827, and they, Jesus calmed the storm, and they said, What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the seas obey him. They go a step farther in chapter 14 when the storm is instantly calmed again and they say, you are certainly God's son. And it's just the next chapter when Peter makes his great confession in 16 when he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They start from a place of faith. Both disciples and skeptics though here, we see that they both ask for explanations but there's a difference in how they ask. The, the skeptics ask for a question. They ask for an explanation in 15.2. And the disciples do here in our text today. But when, when these disciples asked, they didn't ask like the Pharisees. Look at 15.2. We're back to 15. If you were in 4, you're back in 15 now. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So you see that? They're asking for an explanation. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. But do you see the spirit of their question? You, you can feel it, can't you? It's antagonistic. You see it again and again throughout the book of Matthew 9-11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, another question, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? You hear the spirit of that? They want an explanation, but they're not wanting to learn. In 12.10, a man whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the text even tells us, so that they might accuse him. 
17.24, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the true drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And 19.3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They're testing him. 21.23, he entered the temple and the chief priests and elders and the people came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? When somebody asks you a question, you have to determine whether they're really asking you a question. They ain't always asking you a question. You might be, it might be appropriate to put a question mark at the end of it, but they're not always asking a question. A lot of times a question is simply an accusation with a mask on. It's an accusation wearing a mask. In Matthew 22, 15 through 18, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians and they said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you teach the way of God in truth and you defer to no one. So they buttered him up. For you are not partial to any. You're so brave, Jesus, and you're such a great teacher. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Hypocrite means mask wearer. You're, you're, you're acting like you respect me. But actually, if I say, yes, you should pay it, you're going to go to the Jews and say, hey, he's, he's, he cares more about Rome than he does us. But if I say no, you're going to go to the Romans and you're going to say, he says we shouldn't pay. So it's a lose-lose. What no question being asked. There's an accusation with a mask on. He smokes it out and he hits them harshly. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Jesus could smoke out these hypocritical questions every time and that's why he answered so harshly. But when the disciples asked, they're asking with a teachable spirit. The disciples were learners. He even said that in chapter 13, 10 through 12 when the disciples came to him. He said, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? And Jesus answered, because to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, you all have some faith. You start from a place of faith. You believe in order to understand. So you that have, to you more will be given. And you will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away. So Jesus handles the disciples differently because they had faith that was seeking understanding. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And since you want to hear and you want to see, you're going to see and you're going to hear more and more. He won't refuse you. They knew they could come to Jesus when they wanted to better understand and Jesus knew that their questions were asked in sincerity. Now how do you feel about a teachable person? You like them, don't you? Well, bear in mind something, though, about teachable people. Teachable people are necessarily ignorant. Did y'all know that? Because if they aren't ignorant, then they have nothing to learn. Right? You can't be teachable and know everything. So, teachable people are ignorant people. And ignorant people can be exasperating at times for a man. And Jesus was a man. So we're going to see his exasperation expressed here in verse 16. Jesus said... Are y'all still lacking in understanding also? All those these, all those these, all those these. Although these disciples are teachable, they had a lot to learn, and they didn't always learn quickly. They're asking Jesus to explain concepts that he's already taught them throughout his ministry. And he's already clarified for them in the parable of the wheat and the tares. They already said, explain this parable to it. And it directly applies to the immediate context. He's taught it consistently from the Sermon on the Mount on, these same concepts. And he explained it to them in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And now they're asking again. Jesus explained that some people were planted in the Lord's field by the enemy, the devil himself, and that they're sons of the evil one, and that at the end of the age they would be uprooted, gathered together, and thrown in the fire. Their uncleanness is rooted in their origin. They're planted by the evil one, and their nature, their tares by heart, they're poisonous. And Jesus has built on that already laid foundation the truth that these Pharisees will be among the uprooted terrors that are going to be judged. That's what he just said in verse, chapter 15. Leave them alone. Every plant that the Father did not plant will be uprooted. He's been very clear. But they still don't get it. You know, sometimes people just don't get it. Although they're not as strict in the disciples in their 
observance of ritual washings like the Pharisees, not every school of rabbi or school rabbinical thought washed their hands every time they ate, they ate. And the disciples didn't, but then they probably thought, well, Jesus isn't real strict on that little point. We don't have to do that. But they still cared about these cleanly ritual rules. They still mattered to them, and they couldn't understand that. The view that defilement could arise from eating or drinking the wrong things or in the wrong way was so much a part of the disciples' heritage that they couldn't fathom that it was, there was absolutely nothing to it at all. They're kind of confused about it. Jesus had told the crowds, Hear and understand in verse 10. Look, it says, Hear and understand to the crowds. And now he learns that his closest disciples who have been with him day and night, who have heard every sermon that he's preached during his two-year ministry, didn't get this foundational teaching after two years. And he's with them all the time. And he's like, they get this. And then they explain this to us. And he's exasperated. Brothers and sisters, realize this. When you're discipling people, you're going to be disappointed. There's going to be people who aren't as far along as you thought they were. And they're going to say and they're going to do some stupid stuff. that You'd pull your hair out if you had any. It's exasperating. It can be so tiring. But we disciple people from where they are, not from where we'd have them to be. If they were already where they should be, there would be no need of discipleship. So you're patient with them. You work with them. Sure, it's exasperating, but you keep on working. Jesus clearly thought they should have understood this concept by now. I'm going to do a little rabbit trail to show exactly how exasperating these disciples were because this episode is not an isolated event. To Jesus' frustration, the disciples showed their ignorance and their, off, their immaturity often. First, the disciples were petty. Remember when they were arguing over who's the greatest? Can you imagine? We're, hey, we're getting a circle of guys. Which one of us? I think I'm greater than you. I mean, we wouldn't even do that, would we? But that's what they did. Which one of us is the greatest? And another time, James and John and their, and their mother came to Jesus and they asked that one of them be able to sit on the right hand and one of them on the left hand. And in, in verse 2024, 20, the ten became indignant. They heard about it and it uses the word indignant. That means really, really, really mad. How dare you want to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom? I mean, it's like they're dealing with my kids or something, not with disciples. Petty. Little, squabbly nonsense. They doubted Jesus' protection. Remember when, when Peter was walking on the water and he looked around at the waves? and he, Man, he had already been in the, in the boat in chapter 9 when Jesus said, Peace be still and everything's perfectly still. And here he is again and he looks, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he becomes afraid and he begins to seek. And Jesus expresses that exasperation. He says, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And he doubted Jesus' provision, you men of little faith, in 16, 8 through 9. Why do you discuss about yourself that you have no bread? Do you not understand and remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets full you picked up? There were five loaves and two fishes, and then you got 12 baskets full of food of leftovers after feeding like 20,000 people. 5,000 men, not including the women and children. And if that's the Maynardville Fellowship families, then it's going to be 20,000 plus, right? And they're like, he's upset because we didn't bring bread? You, little, you men of little faith, you're doubting my provision? They doubted his purpose. Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. He said, God forbid it, this will never happen to you. And that time Jesus rebuked even more harshly in exasperation. He said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and he failed to grasp his priority. And on the mountain of transfiguration, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus and he's transfigured before their eyes. And then Peter says, this is good that we be here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then that time... God the Father was exasperated because he spoke out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. He's a priority. He's not on equal ground with Moses and Elijah. He's above them. But they didn't get it. They've been with Jesus this whole time. They still don't get it. They even failed to understand his person, we see in the book of John. 
John 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have, you, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me, Philip? Because he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you ask and say, show us the Father? Don't you know who I am? Oh, you of little faith, how long will I be with you? Have I been with you so long yet? Exasperation over and over again. MacArthur says this, he says, In what must have been a tone of grief, Jesus replied, Are you still lacking understanding? With all that I've taught you during the last two years, the Lord was saying, Are you still like the multitudes who just can't get what I'm talking about? There's two takeaways here. When you sense someone is exasperated with you, have you ever sensed that somebody's exasperated with you? Or even if they tell you, I'm so frustrated with you right now. Have you ever noticed sometimes you'll get offended at them for being exasperated at you? How dare you be exasperated at me? Don't be offended. They are not sinning against you if they're exasperated with you. Be humble enough to know that the exasperation might be warranted. Maybe you're just a chore. Right? And don't be offended. Jesus certainly was right to be exasperated with his disciples. Be humble. And think, hey, I too have been exasperated with people sometimes. They're exasperated with me. I'm not going to be offended. We're going to work through this. And I'm going to seek to learn if I need to. And I'm going to be patient with them if they're the one that's wrong. That's just how you deal with it. Don't be petty like the disciples. And another thing, when you feel exasperation toward those with whom you're discipling, you're in good company. Jesus experienced it too. So we know that feeling it is not in itself sinful. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a poor teacher when, you, when your pupils fail to learn. Homeschool moms, remember that? Homeschool dads, remember that? Your kids are like, I must be the worst teacher in the world. No, they might not just be getting it yet. Jesus was the greatest teacher in the world. But look at his disciples. They struggled. But God gives light in his time. But although exasperation is not sinful, it, like anger, is dangerous. So we've got to be careful with it. We can't just live there and let it burn to the point of sin. But don't just beat yourself up. Work through the exasperation. Notice that although Jesus was exasperated, we see that he still labored with them. He gave the explanation that they asked for in verses 17 and 18. Do you not understand, verse 17 and 18, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. John Calvin said this, he said, As the disciples betray excessive ignorance, Christ justly reproves and upbraids them for being still void of understanding, but yet he does not fail to act as their teacher. Mm. Guys, Sure, you're going to be exasperated. Sure, it's going to be sometimes necessary to reprove and upbraid someone. But we don't get to fail to act as their teacher. We don't get to write them off and be done with them. May we be comforted by this truth and instructed by Jesus' patience. Let's look at how we should be comforted by the fact that um, Jesus continues teaching even when there's exasperation. Well, the reason I say we should be comforted is because sometimes we're the exasperating ones. We, we like to think, yeah, I know what it's like to be exasperated. I'm the teacher here and I'm the exasperated one because people are hard to deal with. Guys, sometimes it's you that's the one that's hard to deal with. You're the exasperating one. To those who are more mature and more knowledgeable than you, but you can be very exasperating as they see you make mistake after mistake and do stupid thing after stupid thing and say stupid thing after stupid thing. Sometimes you're the exasperating one. And in some sense, you're exasperating to God himself. Be honest with yourself. Consider how your hard-heartedness, your hard-heartedness, your ignorance, and your sloth grieves the Holy Spirit Himself. The Bible tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. You're, you're the exasperating one. Can you not, like the disciples, sometimes be petty? I've felt things before and I've had to just give myself a pep talk and say, you know, buck up Sally and quit being such a girl, you know. You can be petty, can't you? If you're honest. Take offense easily. Be so, so petty and silly. Do you not foolishly doubt God's protection at times? Have you not doubted His provision and thought, how am I going to make it? He's provided for you all the time. You've always been well. But then you'll get in some little spot and you doubt His provision. Just like the disciples. 
Or His purpose for your life. Do you forget that He'll exalt you even through the path of suffering? That He's got a purpose for every little thing and therefore you grumble and complain instead of rejoicing? Yeah. Do you, do you not fail to recognize Jesus as the only priority, just like these disciples did? And you want to build three towers, maybe not to Elijah and to Moses, but to other things that end up having equal footing with Jesus that you've elevated to a place that they, it doesn't deserve? Do you not become sidetracked by lesser things? But when you return to yourself, that's all the beat down you're getting for just a minute. When you return to yourself, again, there's that God-planted eagerness to obey that's deep in your heart, isn't there? You, you lose sight of things and you come back to yourself and you're like, no, what am I doing? Praise God. You've got that. There's a, that eagerness to obey is there. When you come back to yourself, there's a willingness to suffer loss in the path of obedience. It's still there, isn't it? That, that, what God planted, it's still there. You're at war with the flesh and sometimes it seems like you're losing, but it's still there. Because God gave you a new heart. God gave you a starting point of faith, not of doubt. You're a disciple. Although you forget, although you're a slow learner in some lessons, God will not leave you where you are. He will keep teaching you. Philippians 1.6 I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Be encouraged. He won't leave you. Might be exasperated, but he won't leave you. And he'll have people in your life who won't leave you too. Who will keep pouring into you even when you're the exasperating one. He'll bring people, material, situations into your life to teach you what you need to learn. But not only do we need to be comforted, we need to be instructed because we must like Jesus, we must be like Jesus toward the less mature disciples who sometimes exasperate us. If we see the signs of a new heart, if we see a humble spirit, if we see that a person has some desire for the things of God, however faint that spark might be, then we can't write them off. We must not cast our pearls before the swine, sure. We must give not that which is holy to the dogs, sure. We're told to wipe our dust, uh, our, uh, the, the dust from our feet when someone is obstinately set against the Lord or us or the message that the Lord has for us to deliver. But when we see a teachable spirit, we must try and disciple regardless of how slow the growth might be. Feel that exasperation. At times, if you must express that exasperation, Jesus did. But continue instructing. Sometimes the same old lessons. Repetition is essential. We're back to our text. That's a long, as a rabbit trail, but I thought a helpful text-adjacent rabbit trail to remind us that is directly related to this text. Repetition is essential. Notice verses 17 and 18. It's basically what Jesus said to the crowds. Look at, look at verse 10 and 11. After Jesus called the crowds to him, he said, Hear and understand. It's not that which enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but that which proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. Now, he says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile a man? It's the same thing. And very little extra information. You're like, I, I could preach it all again, but I already preached it to you in verses 10 and 11. It's the same thing. He adds a little more content for clarity. We'll continue. We'll, we'll think about the extra content. It is helpful. Jesus' explanation begins with the question, Are you still lacking understanding? And then another question, Do you not understand? That's kind of weird. Are you still lacking understanding? Do you not understand? These back-to-back -back questions are not the same question repeated twice. The first one he's asking, Do you not understand what I've taught? And the second one is, Do you not understand the digestive system? Like, for real, that's, that's what the second question is. Do you not understand the digestive system? The implied answer is yes. You know how this works. You've been to the bathroom before, right? You, 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 can, you can get this. Okay? He related to them with common sense and logic. He's saying, y'all ought to be able to think through this issue. That's what he's, he's saying. Y'all don't, don't have to have the Old Testament memorized to figure this out. This, this is a common sense thing. His everything in verse 17 is comprehensive. Everything that enters into the man, right? It says everything that goes into the mouth. That's everything. That means clean and unclean. It means whether your hands are washed or whether they're not. If it goes into your mouth, every single thing that goes into your mouth, right? It goes first into the stomach and then, well, you know, right? 
And at this point, it's all waste. Once it exits your body, it's all defiled. And it's all dirty. But we know that we're not defiled by our own waste products. So ultimately, it passes through us and it's gone. In the end, pun intended, nothing remains of any defiling thing that might have entered your body. In the end, it's not there anymore. The digestive tract produces nothing. It only processes these external things and then it gets them out of you. It goes in, it's filtered through, and it leaves. It's gone. Do you not understand that? But the heart, though, it doesn't process anything. It produces. The stomach processes what you put in. The heart produces things that go out. What comes out of the man is the product of his heart, which in the Bible is not the seat of emotions. When we think of the heart, we think of Valentine's Day, right? That's what we think of, and romantic love and emotions. No, in the Bible, heart is the seat of the actions, the, the thoughts and the words. The, it's a synonym for the will. You say and do what you say and do because that's what your heart wants to say and do. It's who you, it's who you are. You say the heart is the seed of who you are as a person. Therefore, you produce the words and the actions that you produce are a product of who you are. Again, I said it last week and Shane loved it. It's, it's not original to me, but you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner at heart. You don't become a sinner because you do bad things. You do bad things because you're a sinner. It's your nature. If the heart is bad, it will produce bad things. We do and say defiling things because we have a defiled heart. We were born in Adam. We're fallen. In Adam, all die. Jesus locates true purity and impurity in the heart and its products, the nature and the origin of food and all that stuff. It changes nothing what you put in your body. It's not a matter of what you eat, but of who you are. Jesus told the Pharisees the same thing when they accused Jesus of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebul all the way back in chapter 12, 12, 34 and 35. He rebukes them and he says, You brood of vipers, you offspring of vipers, you sons of the devil, you, you that were planted by the evil one, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? You, you are evil, so you can't say good things. You're blaming me of not being the Messiah and doing these things wickedly because it's who you are. You won't be right because you've already decided you won't believe. It's in your heart. It's a heart problem. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure what is evil. Jesus' point is that they cannot do externals to make themselves clean. You can wash your hands all day long. It ain't going to make your heart clean. They need a new heart. And they, this is Matthew's version of John 3.3, 3, really. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You won't see it unless you're born again. Unless, you're, unless the stony heart's been taken out of you and a new heart's been put in you, you're not going to ever be clean. You need a heart transplant, and you can't do that by washing your hands. You can't even do it by making a decision. God's got to change your heart. That's the problem sons of the evil one. And you can't fix that. Jesus isn't done though. Now we see the explanation restated. Look at, look at verse 19 through 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. I mean, again, a bit of application and clarification is added, but in essence, this is the mirror image of verses 17 and 18. It's exactly the same thought. It's, but when I say mirror image, I mean exact mirror image. It's just flipped over. He's saying the same thing in reverse order. 17 and 18, you can sum it up by saying, what you eat cannot defile you, but what comes out of your heart does. And verse 19 and 20, what comes out of your heart defiles you, but what you eat doesn't. He just says it in opposite order with extra clarifying details, but the same thing in opposite order. Sometimes you teach something and they just don't get it. So you teach it again. And sometimes it's still not clicking. So you say it in a different way. And in a different order. I said it this way, well maybe if I turned around I said it that way. Or with different applications. Or a different 
object lesson, a different analogy. You just add, you're like, okay, you're not getting it when I present it this way. I'm going to say the same truth and I'm going to say it this way. And I'm going to say the same truth and I'm going to say it this way. And I'm going to say the same truth and I'm going to say it this way. I'm going to keep saying it till you get it. We have a lot of homeschool families here, don't we? Can it not be exasperating? The child struggles with a word. I, I, some of you can relate. I know you can. They struggle with a word and you help them sound it out. And the child gets it. They get the word. Two sentences later, it's the same word. And, and it's like they've never seen that word before in their entire life. And, and I'm like, you just read this word five seconds ago. I, my, my, I, I express my exasperation to my own children. You, you read this. Look. Right here, two sentences ago, I, I, I circle it with my finger. You, you read it right here. You, you just read it. Same word. What is it? I don't know. You sound it out for me. Oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know it. All right, all right. So, so say it here. It's in, it's in this sentence. Say it, say it here. It's this word. You just read it here. Say it here. And they say it. You're like, good, yes. Two sentences later. Ah! You're right. But what do you do? You, you stick with it. You keep teaching. Family worship the other night, Jessica asked Sava, why were the prophets able to predict future events? She's got nothing. Now, come on, Ava, you know this. And she starts to tear up. I, I don't know. Okay. Well, all right. Who wrote the Bible? Well, that's a catechism question. She knows the catechism questions. So, who wrote the Bible? And she says, holy men that were taught by the Holy Spirit. All right? That's who it was. Okay, alright. So now, why could the prophets predict the future? Nothing. Because they were taught by God. Well, yeah, but, but from the catechism. They're able to predict, to predict the future events because they're holy men who were taught by... The, why, why, who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. So they could predict future events because they're taught by who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, she got it today. <laughs> we'll see next time. But she, she gets it on some level. She knows, but everything's not connected yet. When you're discipling people, they're going to get it on some level and you think you've arrived. You think, oh, they get this. They might be able to answer a few things by rope, but they've not got it down heart deep. And they're going, they don't understand it as well as I think they do. And all that means is you've still got work to do. That's all it means. You've got to say it different. You've got to say it a different way. You've got to turn it this way. You've got to turn it that way. You've got to give it a different analogy. You've got to give it a different application. And that's what we do. Again, here he adds more detail. He gave the analogy of the stomach, natural Theology, how God designed the body and how food works. But now he builds on it with more detail. Building more on this foundation here, it's very interesting things are hidden in verse 19, which point us again to the Pharisees. Out of the heart comes the first... It's seven things here, but one of them is the overarching one, and there's six that go under it. And, and the, the overarching thing is poneros dialogismos. And I did say that right. Okay. It's evil thoughts. Poneros, evil, bad, wicked, worthless, toilsome. It, it has the idea of degeneracy, something a de degenerate would do. And through bad, out of the heart comes bad dialogismos, bad arguments, bad uh, motives, bad opinions, original decisions it can mean. Um, MacArthur, he, he calls it inner reasoning, bad inner reasoning. Or O'Brien calls it skeptical questions or doubting. That's where, it's where we get the English word dialogue. So that's exactly what the tradition of the elders had done. They'd taken God's word, and then they, through their own inner reasoning, their evil reasoning, they came to these original decisions about what it means, but it was all broken. It was all wrong. They're getting it all wrong. They, they, they looked at God's law, they thought about it, they speculated about it, and then they twisted it and they made it reflect their sinful hearts instead of the hearts of God. So they had a form of godliness, but it was all messed up. It was all twisted. It wasn't what God's Word really meant. And it, therefore, it made a whole system of people who, who, with their lips, they honored God, but their hearts were far from God. But then they still acted like they worshipped God, but their worship was vain. It was empty. And then, another telling thing. The next six things on the list, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, that takes you back to the Sermon on the Mount. 
In 520, he says, Except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And where does he go? For you say, the, for the, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit, what? First on the list, murder. But I say unto you, whoever's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool will be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Murder's first on the list. What's next on the list? Adulteries. You've heard that it was said, verse 27 and 28, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery. You only do the external, but you don't go heart deep. Your, your, your evil reasoning, your poneros dialogismos has led you to twist the ideas of murder, of adulteries, of fornication. 31 and 32, you've heard it said that he who sends away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for reasons of what? Fornication. Thefts. Again, I say to you, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill, fulfill all your vows to the Lord. They had ways of taking advantage of people, while how they made their vows where they could rip people off. So they were guilty of being thieves, false witness. If anyone, uh, let your communications be yay, yay, or nay, nay, because beyond this comes of the evil one. So he is once again calling out these scribes and Pharisees, saying their whole system, what what everybody else is following, these externals, it's broken from their evil hearts. And if you follow it, the blind lead the blind, and they both fall in the ditch. Get away from them. Get away from them. MacArthur says this. He says, The central moral thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the basis of all sin is the inner thought, not the outward act. A person commits the sin when he wants to do it, whether or not he ever carries out the action. It starts in the heart. So murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and all other sins begin in the heart. The things that defile the man come out of the unwashed heart not out of the unwashed hands. The need is for God to cleanse men's hearts, not for men to wash their hands. One more thing I want to point out. We're almost done, but I want to point this out. It's extra textual. It's, it goes on looking into the future after this event. They still don't get it. I, I want to point that out. They, they still don't get it. In the very next chapter, turn with me, we see these dim-witted disciples show their lack of understanding again in, in 16, 6 through 12. Where Jesus says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith... Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets you picked up or the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? How is it that you don't understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say beware of the leaven of the bread but the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He keeps warning them and they keep not getting it. Their whole system's messed up. It's wicked. It allows for your still evil hearts. You must be born again. They still don't get it. You say they get it here, but then Peter still struggles with the same idea after Jesus' death and resurrection. Turn to Acts 10, 10 through 16. Jesus has done died on the cross. Jesus done rose again. Jesus done ascended to the right hand of the Father and is reigning on high. Acts 10, 10 through 16. When he, Peter, became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, Peter fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were on it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and the birds of the air. And a voice came up and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, by no means. Lord, I have never eaten anything. Unholy or unclean. Hey, do you remember when Jesus said it's not that which goes into a man that defiles a man, but that which comes out? Hey, Peter, what the world? How do you still not get it? And this is Peter, one of the twelve, who saw the Lord, was with the Lord, godly man, wrote some books of the Bible for us. What's that tell us? 
The best of men are men still, aren't they? The best of men are men at their best. Best we can do. And it tells us that Islams have a way of sticking around. Islams do. They get trapped in their heart. By Islams, I mean like ritualism, uh, traditionalism, Pharisaism, feminism, communism, whatever your, your isms are of your day. Man, they get down deep. It's the water you swim in. It's everywhere around you. And, and these disciples, they were truly believing in Jesus, but they still couldn't break free from the presuppositions that belonged to the ritualism, the Phariseeism, and the traditionalism that they'd been raised in. They were real believers, but they didn't get it. We have our deeply rooted isms today. Things that are contrary to the Word of God, but are so deeply ingrained in our culture that truly born-again believers struggle to break free from the ideologies. They do. We do. You know what? You ain't arrived. And I ain't either. And there's things that we're more formed by culture about than we are by God's Word. It's just true. Be encouraged today. God will help us see our entanglements. He will enlighten us and He will grant us repentance. He won't give up on us. Why? Because we're eager to obey. We're willing to follow even when it costs us. And we start from a place of faith. Because He's given us hearts that are that way. And He won't leave us where we are. But also, if you have light in some areas and you're trying to disciple other people who you know are believers but they just can't understand some things that seem so obvious to you, things that you believe really, really matter, be exasperated. Express it. Jesus did. But keep explaining God's truth with patient, repetitious instruction. God will enlighten His people in His time. Focus on the heart. We don't want mere outward conformity. People that just do what we say they should do because we said so. We want them to see it and walk in it because they're convinced it's what God's Word says. And if they really are people who are eager to obey, and they really are willing to follow, even when it costs them, God will get them there in His time, not yours. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Don't focus on the outside of the dish. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside will also become clean. Never start focusing on the outside of the dish. Even on the isms and stuff. Don't focus on the outside of the dish. Focus on people getting the truth. And God will clean up the outside, to match what He does in their hearts. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful to You so much, Christ Jesus, that we have been stubborn and we have been obstinate. and We're not trusting and figuring everything out or getting everything right, but Christ Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. That He has atoned for our every failure. He's atoned for our every sin, our every entanglement. Lord, we hold to that and we trust in that. But Lord, we want to please You and we want to be conformed to Your image. I pray that You'll continue the work You started in us. Help us to disciple others according to Your purposes. And Lord, give us all those clean hands and pure hearts that glorify Your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.